Dear listeners, Sairam, welcome to Trist with Divinity, a series of conversations where devotees of Bhagwan Sri Satya Sai Baba trace their journey to Swami and share their stories of responding to the call of the Lord. Today, we are delighted to welcome Mr. Michael Galligan as our guest in the series. This interview was recorded at our studios on February 16th, 2012. Here is part 1 of this two-part conversation and we urge you to be sure to catch part 2 same day same time next week. So, over now to Mr. Galligan in conversation with Radio Science Karuna Munshi. Sairam dear listeners, our guest today is an American by birth, a seeker by disposition, a teacher by temperament, and now a foster parent by vocation, a product of the complexities of fate and faith. He can't be pushed into any one box, leading one to ask the question, who really is Michael Galligan? Born in Chicago, USA in 1975, Michael's childhood was marked by unusual mystical and spiritual experiences. By the time he was 18, Michael spent some time living alone in a cave in the mountains of Arizona. That's where he met a Hopi Indian medicine woman who introduced him to Sri Satyasai Baba. What unfolded thereafter was life transforming. Currently, Michael Galligan and his wife, Elili Warren Brown, are committed to the Children's Project Trust, a charity that is rescuing children in south india children who are victims of deprivation abuse neglect alcoholism addiction and poverty their work has inspired two books by jennifer gaze the first one being begging for change an uplifting story of love in action and the soon to be published the power of love changes everything Michael and Elili's team play out their roles in a mission that they believe is scripted, directed and produced by their master Bhagwan Sri Satyasai Baba. Today we hope to learn more about Michael Galligan and the Children's Project Trust. Saira Michael and welcome to Radio Sai. Saira and thank you very much very happy to be here. Michael your growing up years in Chicago in the 1970s and the 80s don't sound like the typical image one would have of an American child in that era. You were marching to a different drummer right from the outset, weren't you? Well, I guess when you're little you don't know that you're marching to a different drummer, but when you start to see the differences between you and everything else around you, then you do feel that way. The m- most marked difference that I could say is that I just always truly felt filled with love. for everyone and everything. My mother uh, also encouraged that feeling and taught me uh, to look at things that way. So this feeling of love and expansion was always there. And then I would go outside to play and the children were quite mean and rough and and acting in all of these different ways, but I just felt this flowing love for for everyone and everything. So were you bullied a lot or were you a loner as a child? As a young child, I would say I was bullied a lot because the neighborhood we grew up in was very, very rough, and I was very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the older children would, of course, start to bully me. As time went on, uh, I felt stronger and stronger and stronger, and I felt the power of love stronger within myself. And any time that there was a, a bullying activity going on, I found that I wasn't f- afraid at all. And in fact, 
uh, it brought out something very beautiful in me because I would always try to talk to the person first. I remember one time uh, in my first days in school running around the uh, the playground as we were all running around and someone grabbed me from behind and told me I had to pay $2 to run around on the playground <laughs> and I couldn't calculate or understand what he was talking about. Life was free, we all were free, we all could run around and all of a sudden somebody's grabbing me and telling me all of these things. So I couldn't believe him. You know, I had to, is this true or is this not true? And then I realized this isn't true at all. And so then I became quite tough with him and told him that he'd better let me go. Otherwise, you know, um, there would be certain consequences, etc., which he wouldn't let me go. So eventually I had to show him who was a little bit stronger and then, uh, you know, broke myself free and continued to run and feel happy. And for me, it was beautiful because I realized that nothing could stop you. Mm -hmm. Nothing could bully you. Uh, if you were being true to your nature, if you were enjoying the presence of yourself, which is the presence of God, the presence of Swami, then what can stop you unless you allow it to stop you, unless you believe that you're less than what you really are. So that was a lesson that I learned early on and I think uh, always stayed with me and I've always used in uh, every difficult situation. Mm -hmm. You learned it rather early and I think that's a priceless lesson. I believe you also had some unusual visitors as a child? Yes. A lot of very interesting experiences as a as a young child, and a lot of these experiences certainly led to the path in life later on that was uh, was followed. It made um, the spiritual path appear to be the only path that was a valid path to uh, embark upon. So, as a young child, my sister and I used to be visited by an old man with a white beard and white hair, and he would actually sit at a uh, small table with us, and he would give us little things from a brown paper bag, erasers and candies and little toys and things, and we never really spoke when he would actually visit, but we felt that we had known him forever, we weren't frightened at all, and we felt that he was a member of our family somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, this was an inexplicable um, understanding that my sister and I both shared. It was as if a natural play was taking place between the three of us that we felt completely comfortable with, a play that had been going on forever, and that the things around us were actually rather short-lived, but this person we had known forever. And he would often come when we had other visitors there, and I suppose that the other visitors never saw him. Did you ever report his presence to your parents? Yes. What was their reaction? Did they see him? At the time, no, they, they didn't believe us, nor did they disbelieve us, because they found that things were different. So if I can digress for a moment from, from what we were just speaking of. Sure. Oftentimes when I was little, I would feel that I didn't exist. And I would feel that the physical world around me also didn't exist. And for example, I would sit on my bed, probably around sunset time, and I would have been playing with something or reading a book, and then I would just stop. And as I would sit there, it would seem that the walls could be seen through. Mm -hmm. And it would seem that great distances could be perceived in a different way, not with the eyes, you know, and that things could be heard and understood, not with the ears also. And as I would feel that, I would feel that none of it really actually existed or was real. So in the beginning, this would leave me feeling a little bit lonely, as if I didn't exist. So I would go to my father and I would say, Dad, do you ever feel that you're not real, and that the world is not real, and that nothing is real. And he would say, sometimes a little bit. And I would say, well, that's how I feel right now. And he would say, are you okay? And I would say, yes, I'm okay. I just wanted to let you know that that's how I feel. And, and did right. they wonder if you were all right? No, 
not at all. Mm-hmm. They always knew that I was all right mm-hmm. because I was always very clear. I was always very happy. I was always very bright, and uh, so there was never a question of whether I was all right or not all right. Mm-hmm. And I think that my father could recognize, and my mother also, wisdom in what I was saying. Uh, that there was a greater truth behind mm-hmm. that, uh, and the way I believe that I said it to them, they they understood that. When I told them about this old man who would come and visit us, you know, I I can't say for sure what they thought, uh, but they certainly didn't ridicule it, and they certainly didn't make it seem as if it was anything strange. Mm-hmm. And this would happen repeatedly at different times. And then also, I would have a lot of dreams with this man in in dreams, and they would be various tests. In the dreams, tests of character、uh, translated to things that a child could understand. Many years later, I came to understand and recognize that this was Shirdi Sai Baba, who was appearing to my sister and I. And now my sister and I had forgotten about it.、Uh, by the time we turned around, probably nine or so,、uh, we didn't have those experiences that much、uh, in a physical sense anymore. And there were many beautiful lessons actually that、uh, Shirdi Sai would teach. Do you remember any? Yes. In a dream, he would come, and I believe that the way that God interacts with a devotee or、uh, with life itself is is usually, or many times, a very joyous occurrence. And a lot of times, it's not so much words that are said. As when Swami gives darshan, he's usually completely silent. But what he gives to all of us is beyond measure、mm-hmm. and beyond、uh, anything that we could ever imagine. The wealth of that. So Shirdi Sai used to come in, in a dream, and we would walk together, and he would turn into a lion, and then I would ride on his back, and then he would turn back him to himself, and we would just play, and we would speak maybe a little bit, but what was transmitted. During that time period, the energy, the feeling, the understanding was beautiful and、uh, strengthening and enlightening, and and everything you could wish it to be.、Mm-hmm. Uh, years later, when my father came to Puttaparthi to visit Swami, he said to me, "You know, I always really did believe you when you told me that you were being visited by this old man, because the way that you told it to me, it was so genuine that inside of myself I did believe it, and that's why I never said." I don't believe you.、Mm-hmm. So, and when he came here, and he saw the pictures of Shirdi Sai, and he saw Swami himself, he knew that things like this were completely possible. I so, see. By the time you were eighteen, Michael, that's typically the age when most American teenagers would be busy having fun, exploring life. You opted for quiet contemplation in a cave in Arizona. Why? Well, to be honest with you, in a way, it had always been my dream. Why would you dream of living in a cave? Where was that coming from? That's an interesting question. In school, they always ask you, "What do you want to do when you、mm-hmm. grow up?"、Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in class, and they said, "What What do you want to be when you grow up? You're all going to write on a piece of what piece of paper what you want to be when you grow up,、mm-hmm. and what kind of car you want to drive when you grow up."、Mm-hmm. I think it's a way of conditioning us for、uh, you know material living, etc. So I asked myself, "What do I want to be when I grow up?" And I closed my eyes, and immediately I saw. A man in an orange robe with long black hair and a long black beard, sitting by the side of a beautiful stream in pine trees with great white snow-capped mountains behind him, and he had a large book, and in it he was writing the secrets of the universe on a deerskin. And I said, "That's that's what I want to be when I grow up." I felt like that was me, and、uh, the way that I described it to myself at the time was that to be in harmony with the secrets of the universe. 
with why life happened, how it happened, and what it was, was the goal of life. Did you write it? Did you pen it down in your essay? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, when they asked you, they said, okay, now read what's on your mm-hmm. piece of paper. I said, a doctor. I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. At that time, we didn't really have exposure to mm-hmm. yogis or mm-hmm. saints or anything like that. And um, I didn't know what to call it mm-hmm. anyways in, in the vocabulary that I had. So I just said a doctor to get through the class or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. So that was there. And then I thought to myself, even in the interim, when it was going around the class and they were asking mm-hmm. each student, I thought to myself, but we live in the modern world now. So how to balance being at one with the universe and at one with the secrets of the universe mm-hmm. and living a life where you're responsible to all of the people uh, around you and, and so on and so forth. So that was the question that I had. And I said, okay, I'll live six months in the forest like that and six months in the city. So I told myself that maybe mm-hmm. just to, to balance uh, the way that life could be. So That was your childhood justification. So I believe you went on a field trip to Arizona with your friends? Yes. Camping trip? Yes. And, and a few other things which led up to actually wanting mm-hmm. to stay there in the cave like that. I just, as, as I said, when I was young, you know, it probably started when I was four or five. I felt that the world around me wasn't very real. And that feeling would grow and grow and grow and grow. Things would happen like I would bend down in the refrigerator to take out the lettuce. And as I would bend down to take out the lettuce and open the drawer, all of a sudden I would feel that what eternity actually meant. That things went on forever and ever and ever. So there was an expansion of consciousness. And when I felt that, I felt that I had nothing to do with what I was actually doing. Taking out the lettuce and doing whatever there was to do. And there was a great joy and a great beauty and a great wanting to know. Wanting to know what what life was. What existence was. I could feel existence and wanting to immerse myself in it more. And so this feeling would grow. I went on a field trip with my friends to Arizona, which was about 2,000 miles or so from my home. And when I got there, uh, we, we came to a beautiful river, and uh, I started walking along the path. And I didn't think anything. I didn't think, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to find a cave and I'm going to live here. I didn't have any thought process whatsoever. I was just walking. And all of a sudden I came to this ravine and I went up the ravine. And at the end of the ravine I found this cave up in the, up in the hills there. Everything just clicked together at one time and I just knew that I wouldn't be going back home. I knew I would be staying there in that cave and I knew I would get to meditate on, uh, on God and on the universe and, and on life itself. And that was it. So I came back and I told my friends, okay guys, uh, you can go home without me and here's my, the money that I have, give it to my parents, here's the, the extra clothes I have that I don't need, bring these back to my parents, tell them I'm okay, tell them everything is fine, and I'm going to stay here. And of course they were in shock, and they were in awe, and they said, what's he doing? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but I just knew, I completely trusted, I, I could see the sky above me, and the, the earth below me, and the river right there, and I just knew that everything would be okay, and of course it was. And uh, I would drink the water from the river, I would find little things there to eat, like the prickly pear cactus has fruits, and there's all kinds of little things that you can eat. Now, you do get quite thin and, and so on, but, uh, you know, you can certainly survive. And what did you do most of the time? How did you spend your time? I spent my time in contemplation on God, on contemplation on God as love. And there's a lot of actually interesting stories about um, how, when I originally met Swami, how it just immediately 
became apparent to me that he was a manifestation of God because all of the things that I felt and I thought were what Swami was saying. In my life as a teenager, before I lived in the cave, I used to tell my friends that, you know, God is love and that we should live in love because that's our reality and that's our happiness. And and they would believe that to a certain degree as much as they could. And we would share that type of love, you know. Um, and I would also feel that... Um, you know, God was like the sunshine and it's shining on everyone. But a lot of people just have their heads down and they aren't seeing it. And a lot of these things are, are similar. A lot of the things that I felt and thought are very, very similar to the things that Swami says so clearly. Uh, but it was love. The, the element of love, actually. So, you said that, you know, this is where you were introduced to Swami and right away you knew this he was the one. Yes. If I may backtrack and ask you, you your, your spiritual tradition is Christianity. Yes, but... Not church going. No, not church going. And fortunately, not really practicing. I, I say fortunately. My mother really taught me about love. And my father really taught me about patience. So and your parents were practicing Christians, actually, in the true sense of the, what Jesus said. Yes, in the true sense of what Jesus said. Yes. My, my mother really showed me from a very early age to love everything. I remember when ants used to crawl on me. I thought it was a miracle that these small creatures could move on my body. Somehow that just thrilled me. And if they bit you? They didn't bite. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we kind of, in the USA also, we have a non-biting variety here. Mm-hmm. We get bit all the time, but there they, they don't bite. So it was pretty safe. But from grasshoppers to caterpillars to birds to anything around me, uh, my mother just handled it with so much love that immediately I got the feeling of that love. Uh, if there was a bird that had fallen out of its nest, uh, I would love to go and pick it up and then we'd find a way to put it back in its I nest. It, these were the practical expressions of love. If a dog would come up from the street and I had an ice cream cone, I would let it lick my ice cream cone, then I'd lick my ice cream cone. And actually, my mother didn't stop me even from doing that, which my mother is a very intelligent and loving woman, but somehow she knew that it would be okay. Most mothers would be quite frightened. Don't let that dog lick your ice cream cone. But my mother felt somehow maybe that that was a good experience for me. So but when you were uh, up there in living like a hermit in a cave in Arizona at the age of 18, that's where you were introduced to Swami under very unusual circumstances. Yes. Perhaps you can share that story with us. Well, at that time, I had had a lot of experiences before coming to the cave also. Uh, experiences where I would, I used to sit on my front porch because we lived in a, a somewhat wooded area. We had, we, it was a neighborhood, but we were, we had woods, we had big trees around our home. And I used to sit there and I could just feel what's called the Om. I didn't have any knowledge of it per se. I hadn't read any books on it. But I could hear this vibration. And I could feel this vi- vibration. And I could feel that it was in the trees and the ground and in every single thing. And then I would relate back to my science lessons and remember that all matter was vibrating. And so i say, wow, it really is all vibrating. And, you know, at the age of 15, I... Um, 14 or 15, I decided to become a vegetarian because I realized that the animals didn't want to be eaten, so why should I eat them? Uh, and, and of course, my grandfather didn't like that at all. My parents were very accepting, but not my, my grandfather. But um, so all these experiences had actually prepared me very well for living in the cave, and mm-hmm. it was the most natural experience to do with that. It was the right thing to do in my life at that time. So I would spend most of my time meditating. I meditated on God as love and God as light. I felt that God was love, and God was light. My own philosophy was that if I saw everything through the light of love, that 
I would be able to see God in everything. And I found in that a perfect happiness. You know, just a perfect happiness of love, a perfect happiness of um, expansion and trust. But yet I wanted more. But I knew that there were greater and greater heights to climb in it. But I can say that I never thought of having a guru because I felt, how can I rely upon a human being to show me God or to take me further? And I had seen some pictures by this time of some saints and so on, all of them very beautiful and nothing but respect for each and every one of them. But I didn't feel anything. And I wasn't looking for anyone. I felt that meditating on God as light and love would be sufficient. And as that feeling developed, the feeling of wanting to serve naturally arose. Feeling that there was this great love, there was this great existence all around. I would just pray that I could be an instrument in somehow developing love and somehow developing peace. Now, when I was sitting on the banks of the river meditating one day, I can say that I heard an inner voice. And it just was very soft and very clear, and it just came for a flash and went away. And it just said, very soon you will meet your teacher in this physical world. And I said, okay. And I forgot all about it. Pursue it uh, consciously, obviously. In a forest, you were not going to look Google or Guru. No, no, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. And um, I didn't search either. I just heard this voice. And to be honest with you, I didn't qualify it. Whether it was my own imagination, whether it was an outer voice, it wasn't a giant revelatory experience Mm -hmm. to me. It wasn't something uh, out of the ordinary. It Mm -hmm. just... As, as an awareness flashed across my inner consciousness and was gone. And so I left it and forgot about right. it. Shortly thereafter, I met a Hopi Indian medicine woman. How did you meet her? Um, I had actually met her before, previously a little bit, in town and so on, uh, when I first came. And then she was out in the woods and we met each other and she said, Oh, come back to my house for lunch. So I went back to her house for lunch, and when I went back to her house for lunch, she had pictures of many saints, many gurus and so on in her home. And she had one small bookmark picture of Swami. And Swami had a rose in his hand, and he was getting out of his car. And when I looked at him, he actually looked like my grandmother. That softness, that love, that beauty, that humbleness, that that purity was there. Mm-hmm. There was no stern face. There was no, it was just beauty. And so I picked it up and I looked at the back of the, the bookmark and it said, start the day with love, spend the day with love, end the day with love. This is the way to God. And when I read that, I said, wow, this is what I'm doing. This makes sense. What made me happy about that was that in the United States and probably in most places, the pressures are purely materialistic pressures. Mm, what job are you going to have? How much money are you going to make? How are you going to make ends meet? How are you going to live? Love is nice. All these things are nice. But they all become very much secondary and even further down the list than secondary. So for me, feeling that that was the most important thing, seeing Swami's message was very intriguing and very wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I asked the question, who's this? And she said, oh, that's Satya Sai Baba. And she started to tell me stories that he could materialize anything, that he knew all the languages of uh, all the people on earth, that he had a wish-fulfilling tree that he could pull any kind of fruit from, Mm -hmm. from, 
and many other little stories. And when I heard these things, I didn't know what an avatar was. I didn't know what an incarnation of God was. In my mind, what I thought was, this is someone who truly knows the secrets of the universe and the secrets of existence. If he knows how to create fruit in this way, and if he knows all the these uh, languages and so on and so forth. Now, not that that was most important to me, it wasn't, but it made his message at that point in time to me very valid. That here's someone who really knows the secrets of the universe and the secrets of creation. And he's saying to start the day with love, spend the day with love, end the day with love. That this is the way to God. Then I felt this is real validation for the path that I'm going down. And I don't see validation really anywhere else. <laughs> um, of course, I had some friends and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I had met another hermit who lived in a cave further down the river, and uh, that was his path also. So we would meet up from time to time and discuss, you know, the ways of divine love, etc. That made me very happy, of course. Do you have any idea how the Hopi medicine woman had come to know about Baba? No, I think that she, within her own circle, is is and was probably a bit of a spiritual leader. So she would be in contact with uh, other uh, spiritual personalities, etc. And so I think it, uh, she had a collection of those pictures and saints and gurus, etc. Uh, there. And I'm sure that she said the word avatar. I'm sure that she said these things. But that didn't really register with me at the time. At that time. When I heard about Swami for the first time, I was walking back over the hills, and it was quite a long walk, about 17 uh, miles or so in the evening, and the sun wow. was going down, and I was walking back to the cave, and I was just singing, and singing, and singing loudly, you know, uh, when I would, especially coming up to the top of the mountain, and then going down, and just singing, and it was because of Swami. I was in such high spirits because Swami was real, mm-hmm. and uh, somehow I knew it, and it, it wasn't that I could connect it so deeply, you know, it teaches some experiences yeah. and understandings, but just that injection yeah. of that presence of Swami. But what started happening is that I started thinking of Swami more and more and more automatically. And I didn't have any material on Swami, I didn't have any books on Swami, I didn't have any photos of Swami, but I just kept thinking of him more and more and more, and I kept holding every light, every thought and every feeling up to the light of Swami's presence. Mm-hmm. It just started happening that somehow now Swami's presence was there and I didn't formalize it in my understanding. I didn't say Swami is now in my life or Swami is in my mind or it Swami is in my heart. It was just a natural progression. Yes, I thought this thought is this what would be Sai Baba's thought? This feeling is this what would be Swami's feeling? And I couldn't help but ask myself that question. Now, at the time, I thought I was thinking of Swami, but I realized later on that Swami was thinking of me. How do you mean? Well, if we think that we're the doer, if we think that we're guiding our own spiritual practice or unfoldment, then we're fooling ourselves. Only God can guide that process from within. Our consciousness, none of us, really has any idea where it comes from, where it goes to, how it exists, and how it lives. Mm -hmm. God has that whole and complete understanding. So God is the inner motivator. So what was happening was a process beyond my personality, beyond my ego, beyond my sense of who I was. It's like the waves washing up against the shore and, you know, carrying away the sand. Mm -hmm. So it was as if Swami was the one who was thinking of me. Swami was the one who was blessing 
me with His presence, with the ability to even be a little bit aware of Him, to be able to hold up thoughts and feelings to Him. Mm -hmm. He's the inner magnet, drawing the mind inwards, drawing the heart inwards to find the source of the mind and the source of the heart. And that source is Swami. So... So with this newfound revelation and this new level of evolution, spiritual evolution, you returned to Chicago after six months. What was that like? Was the integration difficult? Yes and no. Going back to Chicago was an expression of an inner prayer which I had had. The inner prayer was that I'd be able to be useful, that I'd be able to be helpful, that I'd be able to share love and that I'd be able to be a good person and a good example of that for the people around me, for my family and, and friends, etc. So I really felt overflowing with love, overflowing with inspiration, overflowing with happiness. And of course, that naturally wants to share. So when I went back, I wanted to share that. Not in any particular way, but just to encourage everyone you know, around me to, to be happy, basically. And... That's a lot easier said than done, mm -hmm. you know. I think the commitment level that you have to have to your own happiness, number one, to your own union with God is very high. And then the commitment level to put up with uh, the kicks of the world and the doubts of others about their own reality and so on and so forth is, is another thing. So... When I came back, everybody was amazed, actually. They said, how, you know, you lived so long out in a cave. How could you do that? You know, in, in the United States, that's a very kind of a rare thing. I mean, nobody else did that, and it was something very different. Typically, we don't do it in India mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you do not expect a city Brit, 18-year-old, to go to the Himalayas in this age and day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I guess it was definitely an unusual experience by any yardstick. I guess so. I mean... Um, for me, of course, it was completely natural and I loved it. But for those around me, they couldn't comprehend <laughs> how you could wonder, do it. Did they wonder, no plans to go to college, not planning your future? Especially because the presence of Swami was there. They could feel that I knew what I was doing. I so they never questioned anything like that. They mm -hmm. didn't, my, my parents never questioned, nobody ever questioned. They knew, I knew what was happening, you know. Uh, but when I would meet a stranger under certain circumstances, say, oh, what have you been doing this and that? Or what are you doing? Mm. They said, oh, I, I just came back from living in the cave, this and that. And I, I'm just uh, continuing on this path of meditation on God and so on and so forth. And they say, oh, that's great. But what are you going to do about money? You know, so <laughs> yes, that question would come up from strangers, but not from the people who knew me. You know? I see. And what ended up happening was very interesting. Uh, other young people used to come and, and ask questions, and they would just come and show up. And then they would just sit there, and we would sit on my front porch, and they would ask questions, and I would just tell little stories or try to give the best explanation I could or mm -hmm. share some love in some way that I'd, I could share some love. But being 18, as you say, most people are wanting to have fun and wanting to, you know, um, attend parties and things like that. So that's what most people ended up doing. So I found myself more and more in isolation, uh, which I would use to my advantage because I would just, uh, you know, go into my room, which had become a, a little uh, altar area uh, to Swami, because Swami had started coming in dreams you know, at that point in time and uh, guiding and instructing and, you know, showing so many things about how to relate to the world or how to relate to uh, the situation with your friends, because we were really like a family. We had grown up together, our parents all worked late, and so we had uh, a lot of time to spend together to nurture each other, to help each other, to understand each other. So it was a very close-knit uh, uh, friendship with, with a number of friends. And um, 
Swami would come in a dream and he would speak to all of them and he would say, Michael loves you all very much, but he has a different path to go down. He'll be waiting for you in the future. He would tell that to your friends? Yes, in a dream, in a dream. And they believed it? In real life, later on, they would say the same thing. They'd say, yeah, we know you just have a different path to go down. But in the dream, Swami had told them that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, at the end of the dream, Swami stood up and he did this dance where his legs came up in the air and his hands came up. And uh, I thought, what's that dance he's doing? And later on, I realized it was uh, the, the Tandava dance, Shiva's dance. And so he was kind of like bringing everything to an end. Disillusioning, uh, dissolving everything, yeah. yes. I see. Michael, all these experiences are just... Um very unusual, obviously, to say the least. Who exactly were your role models when you were growing up? What books, what conversations have influenced your thinking the most? Apart from your parents, obviously, who were wonderful role models. Well, I would say that nature influenced my thinking the most. That was something which I could learn from all the time, meaning that I could easily hear and see the harmonies. Sai Ram, you just heard part one of a conversation with Mr. Michael Galligan, where he shared with us his unusual spiritual journey. In part two, Mr. Galligan shares how he translated his astounding spiritual experiences into a unique outreach project. Be sure to tune in to part two of this conversation at the same time, same day, next week. Meanwhile, we look forward to your feedback to today's segment of a special series, Trist with Divinity. You can reach us by emailing to listener at radiosci.org. Thank you for joining us and please stay tuned to our next program, Sairam from Prashant Nilayam. <laughs>